Chapter 4 Trust It was January of the year 2016, which would prove to be a breakthrough year in mainstream media coverage of driverless cars. We were rolling eastward across the San Mateo Bridge in an Audi A7, picking our way through traffic. One of the car's engineers was driving, while I was riding in the passenger seat. There was another engineer in the back seat, monitoring the car from a laptop. Traffic was getting thick as the workday drew to a close on all the area's tech campuses. It was a beautiful day for a drive, typical for the mid-peninsula. Outside the passenger window, I watched the placid tidal waters of San Francisco Bay, which were a milky green hue beneath a bright blue sky. Then the engineer in the back seat piped up to tell me what was about to happen. And I watched as the car's center console blinked to life with the countdown timer. Five minutes until pilot mode available. As one of the first people outside of Audi to experience what was about to happen, I dutifully stared at the timer and waited for the future to arrive. With the sticker price starting at $68,000, the A7 was a fancy car, but not enough to draw attention along the stock option paved highways of Silicon Valley. I looked at the drivers around us, knowing they hadn't a clue about what was happening in the next lane. The five minutes passed, and then two buttons on the steering wheel's hub blinked, ready to be pressed. That action was inspired by America's nuclear missile systems, where two keys had to be turned at the same time to avoid mistakes. The engineer driving the car pressed the buttons, and a bright strip of LEDs around the bottom edge of the windshield flashed from orange to blue-green. The car was in control now. The engineer lifted his hands from the wheel and put them in his lap. Then he smiled pleasantly as if to say, I'm totally used to people squealing right now. Right on cue, I have to confess, I gave an honest-to-God cheer. The steering wheel pulled back and started to waggle by itself left and right, adjusting to the contours of the road with an uncanny precision. It was a moment that was awesome to absorb. And then, almost immediately, uneventful, which was as powerful a sign as any that something significant had happened during this handoff between man and machine. We were chatting when the car in front of us stabbed at the brakes, the taillights flaring. My attention instinctively snapped forward. I could feel the car making the decision to change lanes, starting to drift over. But then came another blur at the corner of my sight, as a driver to our left dickishly raced into our blind spot, cutting us off. My lizard brain thought to curse the guy, but the Audi, unfazed, merely drifted back to the center of our lane and braked gently, so as not to hit the car in front of us. The engineer behind the wheel was still smiling, mask-like, his hands on his lap. This entire exchange should have been freaky, even frightening. The car was making the decisions on its own, but they were over before you could process the minutiae. You trusted what was happening because the process was so smooth. I asked my blankly smiling driver what exactly he was supposed to be doing right then. He smiled, a tad more lifelike, a couple of teeth showing, as if to say he couldn't answer. By law, the test driver had to remain alert at all times and ready to take over, even if the car didn't need help. So he stared straight ahead like a robot himself, almost motionless. The law simply hadn't caught up to what the car could do. 
By 2019, European Audi A8s came with an optional traffic jam pilot that allowed limited hands-free operation. That option couldn't be offered in America because of the inconsistency in federal and state laws. The supervising engineer piped up. The first three minutes you're thinking, this is crazy, this is the future. Then you get bored. We all laughed. But the very fact of the drive's boringness was a feat. Boringness implied ease rather than fear. A comfort with what was happening, even if it was totally novel. Amid all the headlines about driverless cars, it's easy to miss just how far they have come, and how fast. We can already buy cars that park themselves or swerve to avoid accidents or brake to avoid surprise obstacles. Look a little closer and you can see how awkward the adjustment has been at times. There's a slapstick viral video on YouTube from 2015 with more than 7 million views. It shows a bunch of people at a car dealership in the Dominican Republic who think they're testing out a feature Volvo has been advertising since 2011 that actually prevents the car from hitting a pedestrian. It was indeed a magical-seeming feature, if you had it. You can't quite see the hapless driver settling in behind the wheel, but let's imagine him wide-eyed, bristling with excitement as he prepares to slam on the accelerator. In the foreground stands a guy in a pink shirt. He's leaning forward nervously, a brittle mix of apprehension and excitement. The driver slams on the accelerator, and the car plows right through pink shirt guy, who ragdolls onto the hood. The camera spins wildly, forgotten. It turns out the guy hadn't bought that option, and so had simply run into his foolishly brave Confederate. Self-driving cars went viral again in late 2015, when Tesla dropped a $2,500 software update on its customers that promised a new autopilot feature. The videos were fascinating to watch, mostly because of what wasn't happening. There's one titled, Tesla Autopilot Tried to Kill Me, where the driver slowly lifts his hands off the wheel for the first time with evident nervousness. He's right to be scared. His car, unable to detect the lane dividers that guide it, veers into oncoming traffic. Luckily, he snatches the wheel. Driverless cars won't arrive one day in a flash. They'll arrive on a day that no one notices. And that will be as much of an accomplishment as any, because of what it will say about all the designs that preceded it. Their success doesn't simply depend on engineering. Their success depends on whether we, the people, can guess what a new button in our car does even if we've never used it before. Do we trust it? Getting this right isn't about getting the technology right. The technology exists. It's why, years before that Audi would come to market, there were at least dozens of driverless trucks and cars plying routes across the United States. The greater challenge lies in making these technologies into something we trust. In those Tesla videos, the drivers don't know what the car can't do. Techies and Tesla boosters were quick to lay blame. Don't those idiots know how all these things work? Sixty years after the Air Force stopped blaming plane crashes on pilot error, we're blaming drivers for the sins of their poorly designed machines. The people looking terrified in those Tesla videos? That's not their problem. It's a design problem. The magic of a well-designed invention is that you seem to know how it will work even before you've used it. That requires weaving together the principles we've seen before 
handed down from World War II, Three Mile Island, and elsewhere. But also something else. The secret is that we come to trust machines only if they mimic the way we come to trust other people. Brian Lathrop was in charge of figuring out how to make drivers trust that A7 I rode in. He runs the user experience group at Volkswagen's little-known Electronics Research Laboratory, and his very bland job description belies how much time he spends living in the future. A psychologist by training, California-born and raised, Lathrop is burly, with close-cropped hair like an army sergeant. He speaks with the painstakingly precise diction of a scientist. But he's also an inventor, the co-author of several patents that might prove decisive for autonomous cars. Fifteen years ago, Lathrop found his job on Monster.com, and even the guy who hired him didn't quite know what he'd be doing at Volkswagen. There were 15 engineers, and when Lathrop arrived, they all assumed that he'd be the 16th. His first week, they handed him some circuit boards to solder. Lathrop, a cognitive psychologist in the mold of Alphonse Chapanis and Don Norman, smiled and started in on the circuit boards. He had come, in his words, to the Wild West. There are good and bad things, he says. The bad thing is that no one is giving you directions. The good thing is that no one is giving you directions. Eventually, Lathrop started working on the interiors of a few concept cars, the futuristic visions that Volkswagen would show off at car expos. One thing he noticed was how the array of features inside our cars was creeping upward into absurdity. When he first sat in a Phaeton, Volkswagen's top-tier sedan, Lathrop counted 70 different knobs. He started to think, how do you group these things and get rid of them? And he started to see that a great many of those buttons were dedicated to little tidbits of assisted driving. He thought, why don't I put those all together on a touchscreen? This was around 2010, when self-driving cars were just beginning to be real. A team at Stanford had figured out how to rig up an Audi to drive itself in a race up the fabled Pikes Peak. Anyone could see that the promise of self-driving cars was too tantalizing for them to remain in the lab for long. It happened that Lathrop was particularly well-positioned for the problem. He'd cut his teeth at NASA, trying to create helmet displays for pilots. It was a job that asked a fundamental question of the modern world. How do you pass control of a plane back and forth between a man and a machine? Lathrop already knew that 90% of plane crashes occurred not when the plane broke down, but when the pilot had failed to understand what the plane was doing. He considered what was about to happen with driverless cars and thought, holy crap. I started to think, we're going to run into the same problems, but they'll be multiplied by 10,000. In a plane, you might run into a hint of danger once during a 16-hour flight. In a car, you could have the chance to crash every second. What's more, your fellow drivers haven't dedicated their lives to training themselves to safely drive a car. They aren't paid to keep other people safe. They aren't paid not to put on their makeup or read their email during rush hour. Lathrop thought to himself, what are the odds that someone with a background in aviation was coming to work on autonomous cars in 2010? He was the only one, as far as he could tell. By the time we first met in 2016, 
He had logged more years working on driverless cars than all but a few people in the world. He'd been set down that path by a book, by another human factors scientist, Asaf Dagani, suggestively titled Taming Hal, after the killer computer in Stanley Kubrick's 2001. It had a picture of the HAL 9000's glowing red eye on the cover. In the book, Dagani traced the history of automation and the disasters we've encountered along the way, using everything from alarm clocks to microwaves to airplanes. And while an alarm seems the furthest thing from a sentient AI, Dagani was making a broader point about what the HAL 9000 represented. There's a moment in 2001 where the crew suspicious of Hal's advice, absconds to a soundproof room to discuss unplugging it. Hal, peering in with his unblinking red eye, manages to read their lips anyway. Hal knows what the crew wants, but Hal wants something different. In detailing how cockpits and control panels fail, Dagani was laying out how we might create machines that never seem to have a mind of their own. The book helped Lathrop distill a three-plus-one design philosophy for driverless cars, which has become the guiding force behind his work today. We saw before how the catastrophe at Three Mile Island was caused by its control panels, which buried users in buttons that meant different things without any sense of what was important. It showed us that to build a mental model of how a machine works, you need to embed its workings in an interface that's easy to navigate with a consistent syntax for what every action meant, and feedback to tell you things were going right. And we saw how those principles made their way into the simplest interface of all, the button, which had to show the user, via a satisfying click or a big red light, that the button had been pushed, that the action it was meant to do had actually been done. Whether it's nuclear reactors or smartphone apps or toaster buttons, always and forever, the point is to allow users to figure out what to do, then to tell them what's happening. It was the same for Lathrop's 3 plus 1. There are three things an autonomous car has to get right, plus one. Above all, we need to know what mode a car is in, whether it's driving itself or not. That harks to probably the oldest axiom in interface design. Mode confusion causes most airplane crashes. Alphonse Chapanis and Paul Fitz were the first to discover it when they studied World War II pilots who'd engaged the wing flaps instead of the landing gear. The second principle Lathrop calls the coffee-spilling principle. For us not to get surprised, then freaked out by a driverless car, we need to know what it is going to do before it's actually done. Third, and perhaps most vital in fostering trust, is that we need to know what the car is seeing. And finally, the plus one in Lathrop's formulation, because it relates not just to the user, but to the interaction between user and machine. We need perfectly clear transitions when a car takes control, or when we take control from a car. In the case of this particular A7, those principles had all been compressed into the brief span of a couple of minutes, when the test driver moved our car onto the highway and then let its computers take over the driving. It was a tight choreography. When the car took over, the lights rimming the windshield flashed and changed color to tell us the control had shifted. Not only was it clear who was driving, the transition between man and car had been clear. 
Later on, when the car was changing lanes, it would give a countdown timer saying what it was about to do. And all the while, there was a screen on the console showing all the cars around us, so that we knew that the car was seeing every bit of the environment around us as we were. In the coming years, as the partnership between man and machines takes on even greater texture, our relations with them necessarily will evolve. No longer will it be enough for a machine to be bent around us. It will have to gain our trust. And that trust will have to be built in subtle ways. Consider what the designers at Fuse Project discovered when creating a suit to augment the muscles of the elderly. It looks like an undergarment designed for denizens of the Starship Enterprise, a form-fitting leotard with hexagonal pods clustered around the thighs and back. Those pods were in fact motors that worked like an additional set of muscles, powering on when the wearer needed them, while standing up from a chair, for example. The broader problem the suit was meant to address was indeed a consequential one. The graying of populations throughout the developed world, and the likelihood that more and more elderly people would be caring for themselves in the coming decades. But what had sold investors on the project was the magic of artificial intelligence, using sensors that detected the electrical signals in the wearer's muscles. The motor pods could readily predict what the wearer intended to do, almost as soon as they intended to do it. A problem arose right after the designers began to test the prototype for themselves. If the suit just takes over when someone is moving, then it's just doing the same thing as what the aging process has done says Eve Bahar, the founder and chief designer at Fuse Project. It's just giving people less and less control. Feeling like a suit was taking over your movements would be like being a marionette on a string. What could be worse was what would happen if the suit made an error in thinking you wanted to do something and then acted, getting the whole thing wrong. If for any reason it does something when you don't want it to, you lose trust, Bahar said. It wasn't just that the suit could potentially reinforce the idea that wearers were losing control over their lives. It was that in doing so, it would lose whatever trust was required for the wearer to even use it, dooming the product. The problem was how to make the wearers feel in control without any screens to guide them. Solving it required a novel interface. When the suit detected emotion, the relevant motors would give a slight buzz. At that point, users would simply place their hands on the motors themselves. So, for example, when the wearer leaned forward while sitting, the thigh motors would give a buzz. If the wearer placed their hands on their thighs, the motors would buzz twice to tell you what was about to happen, and they'd engage. Just as with the Audi, it was telling you what it was doing, letting you confirm the action, then telling you again that your intent was registered. But it was all designed to embed that cascade of feedback into a behavior that already exists, the natural motion of bracing your hands on your thighs before you stand up. It was a clean example of how behavior has become the material of design. It was also an example of how it isn't enough just to readapt our patterns. Whether it's a suit that augments your muscles, a driverless car, or an artificially intelligent assistant. Any technology that asks us to seed what we could once only do for ourselves will need to understand our mores.
Those designs will have to understand what's appropriate or tactful or simply nice, because that's the way humans build trust. While politeness seems like a trivial detail, it is a design constraint as real as the heat tolerance of steel or the melting point of plastic. In the mid-1990s, the sociologist Clifford Nass made one of the strangest discoveries in the annals of computer-human interaction. For nearly 20 years, Nass studied how we think about our computers, not just how we use them, but how we feel about them. He had worked out a process to think up new experiments. He and his collaborators would scour the annals of sociology and psychology, finding papers about how humans behaved toward one another, careful to look at how other researchers crafted studies to isolate human-to-human interaction. And then he'd figure out how to observe what would happen if you replaced one of the humans with a computer. Nass was particularly interested in politeness. Though it seems like a squishy subject, politeness can be quantified. Imagine you are teaching another person how to drive. Then imagine if you asked your pupil how you'd performed as a teacher. To test for politeness, you could simply compare the responses given to you directly with those given when someone else had asked how you'd performed. The difference would be a rough measure of how much we muzzle our criticism of someone when asked to say it to their faces. Nass wondered if humans might behave the same way toward a computer, with the same inborn sense of etiquette. It turned out that humans really were nicer to the computers that they knew. First, he had test subjects perform some simple tasks on the computer. Then he had them rate the design of its software. One group on the actual computer they'd used, and another on a different machine. It turned out that people using a different machine were far harsher when appraising the original computer program. They were more critical when they weren't faced with the computer they'd used. They acted more politely in front of the computer that had been theirs. No one was conscious of doing this. In fact, they denied that they'd ever consider being polite to a machine. But they did it all the same. In dozens of experiments, Nass documented a menagerie of strange examples. In one, people thought more positively of a computer that lavished praise upon them. The behavior somehow remained even after they'd been told the praise was meaningless. In another, he gave two groups of people blue and green armbands. After asking them to use a computer with a screen lined with green paint, the ones with the green armbands rated their experience more favorably. As his frequent collaborator Byron Reeves told the New York Times, everybody thought computers were tools, that they were hammers and screwdrivers and things to be looked at in an inanimate fashion. Cliff said, no, these things talk. They have relationships with you, and they make you feel good or bad. Nass liked to point out that our brains evolved to deal with two basic types of experience, the physical world and the social. Computers were a new hybrid of both. Since their beginning, we had thought they belonged to the physical world, but because they responded to us, engaged us, aggravated and pleased us, we couldn't help but see them as social actors. If so, we couldn't help but assume that they'd hew to the rules of polite society. Talking to Lathrop, hearing of all the years of research and care plied into every detail, 
The way humans relate to computers seemed almost comically complicated. But it turns out that there's a more basic way to frame our expectations of machines, one that's more familiar and easy to grasp. Our expectations of machines are, to a startlingly consistent degree, well-mapped to our expectations of actual human beings. Consider what happens when you're driving in your car, come to a stoplight, and then pull out your phone to check a text message. We all know it's wrong, but most of us have done it anyway. Alone, you wouldn't think twice about it. But if you are with a friend, she'd be smart to scold you, pay attention to the road. Maybe you'd protest that you are paying attention, that you know what's going on. Yet your friend couldn't know that. She would feel endangered because she wouldn't know what to expect of your next move on the road. She would feel endangered because she wouldn't know that you'd taken in all the information that she has. Who's crossing the road? How long it's been since the light turned? The car that's just pulled up alongside you. No matter how well they know each other, people who face a shared danger are constantly checking who knows what and what to do next. It is no different with the machine. The car also has to tell both the driver and the rider about what it's sensing. To solve that problem, the A7 shows you a map of your surroundings as the car sees them. Outlines of the other cars on the road, shown on a simple, stripped-down display. This doesn't seem like new information. After all, it's merely a crude representation of what you can see simply by looking out the window. But in fact, the display is telling you that the car sees what you see. And then it tells you what it's going to do. There's a screen that tells you what the next move will be, left turn, with the countdown timer until it happens. Simple as it sounds, that bit of information means the difference between feeling like you're taking a ride and feeling like you've been taken hostage. The sense of safety you get from that is akin to riding in a car, looking over, and seeing that the driver has both hands on the wheel, eyes forward. She's using her turn signals, checking her blind spots. We're constantly checking out the people around us to see if they see what we do, to guess whether they know what we know. Our expectations are no different if our partner is a car, driving itself, or a machine that purports to help us. The conversation we have with either shadows those we have with people we trust. Paul Grice, the great philosopher of language who helped define that field in the 20th century, thought of conversation as adhering to unspoken rules of cooperation. He laid out those rules as a set of maxims, which boil down to being truthful, saying no more than you need to, being relevant, and being clear. Grice's maxims also shed light on politeness. Being polite means following a conversation, not co-opting it, and dragging it in other directions. It means knowing who you're talking with and knowing what they know. It's rude to talk over people, to misunderstand who they are. These maxims happen to neatly map to the same design principles laid out by Don Norman and the ones that guided Brian Lathrop in the creation of Audi's self-driving A7. You can use that way of thinking to look back at one of the worst pieces of software ever designed. Clippy the animated assistant that used to pop up every time you did anything in Microsoft Word. Clippy had no sense of his place, or what you were trying to do. Whenever you typed the word, dear, Clippy would pop up and say, I see you're writing a letter, 
Would you like some help? It didn't matter how many times you'd said no before. Clippy had to butt in. If you asked Clippy a question, he'd tell you something completely unrelated. If you rephrased the question, he'd say the same thing again. Clippy never learned your name, how you worked, what you preferred. Worst of all, no matter how useless Clippy was, he still smiled with puffed-up posture, taunting you. Clippy was unconscionably rude, and a rude machine is worse than one that simply doesn't work. When you're in dialogue with a computer, the logic of creating a trustworthy machine isn't just about fitting machines to the man, but weaving machines into our social fabric. There's a culture to how things should behave. As Clifford Nass knew all along, humans expect computers to act as though they were people and get annoyed when technology fails to respond in socially appropriate ways. Whether it's the rules of conversation or the rules of interface design, the goal is to communicate in a way that's easy to follow. The interactions are all structured around feedback so that both partners know that they're aligned. Sometimes, in the case of a nuclear reactor panel, that feedback is a set of lights telling us that what we've just done was indeed what we wanted to do. In our social lives, feedback comes in the form of a conversational partner unconsciously nudging us with their body language about whether the conversation is going well. Whether we are communicating with a human or a machine, the goal is to create a shared understanding of the world. That's the point behind both the rules governing polite conversation and how a user-friendly machine should work. Months after I took my test drive in the Audi that drove itself, the user experience researchers at Volkswagen gathered in an empty parking lot to try to figure out how pedestrians would behave around an autonomous vehicle. It seemed to give in that it would scare them. Unless people are standing on the pavement with the vehicle, you can't appreciate how they're going to feel, pointed out Eric Glazer, the young project leader. The experiment demanded a giant tent over the parking lot, to control how the light spilled across the bare-bones street intersection they had created overnight. There were stop signs and crosswalks and lanes. There was an Audi A7 idling just beyond the intersection, with its windows pasted over with limo tinting so that no one could see there was no driver. Participants would be asked to simply cross the road whenever it felt safe. At that time, very few people in the tribe of geeks researching autonomous cars had given much thought to the issue. At the extreme, you could imagine terror. Say, if the car behaved so erratically that people raced across the intersection with their breath held. But instead, something stranger happened. I thought people would be conservative, said Glazer. But people were really fearless. They saw the car and blithely stepped in front of it. It was a riddle as to why they were so heedless, but it seemed like it had to be one of the many external displays on the car, which were meant to tell pedestrians what the car was doing. There was one LED sign with an icon telling people they could cross. There was a strip of LEDs that gave a pixelated representation of the pedestrian, showing that the car was seeing them, just like you might meet the gaze of a human driver to make sure that she had seen you. It turns out that despite the hundreds of hours Glazer had spent carefully designing all these details, no one noticed them. Instead, people were so trusting because the car acted in a respectful, socially acceptable way.
In a split second, people could see that the car was coming to a measured stop, just like a human driver might. The slowness of that stop said something, that the car had seen you, that it wasn't going to suddenly gun the engine, that whoever was inside wasn't a psycho out to do harm. The physical driving behavior of the car is actually its own human-machine interface, said Glazer. It turns out, the personality of the car is something you have to program. Cars are just one example of the general truth that there's a culture to the way everything around us behaves. This insight offers two forking choices. We can ignore it at our peril, as Tesla repeatedly seems to. But while the ethos of moving fast and breaking things means it's easier to make technical progress, that progress is illusory, as it's human nature to avoid something that didn't work the first time. On the other hand, we can recognize that the key to making us comfortable with the future lies in mapping all the contextual nuances that we use without thinking. In realizing, for example, that the way a car pulls up to a curb is an interface all its own. We can watch actual humans in hopes of making things more humane. It's not enough to make a dashboard just easy to use or easy to read. And while we don't need a dashboard with a full-blown personality, it'll have to have personality traits. It'll need to be calming, communicative, or helpful, as the situation demands. We're bootstrapping this technology, Glazer told me. The gaps will get filled in, but we need handholds along the way. Then he showed me an example. Back at the lab, a small army of engineers and project managers had gathered to show off a new concept. And now we would like to reveal something special for you, Glazer announced. He was shockingly young. Compared with the many other stone-faced Germans standing around, he looked like an intern, gawky, earnest, wearing jeans, with the chin strap of facial hair that likely began just a few years ago, around his junior year of college. Like his boss, Brian Lathrop, he seems to have been charting a course to this job for years. As a student at Carnegie Mellon, he helped design a robot programmed with an agenda. As it offered you snacks, it detected what you chose and tried to coax you into healthier choices. Cookies again, huh? It had an LED capable of expressing a subtle frown of judgment. Glazer was still facing the same challenge. How do you build a smart robot that doesn't freak people out? Off to the side of the garage was a black cloth draped over something bulky, about the size of a couch. An assistant gently rolled back the cloth. Voila. Here was a simulated dashboard and steering wheel. This is a working-as-of-last-night prototype, Glazer said, his eyes red-rimmed with fatigue. The steering wheel, a year and a half in development, had just been bolted into the simulator hours before. It wasn't just a demonstration of a new design. It was the demonstration of a new metaphor for how we might relate to our cars. And that metaphor had traveled decades to get here, to the lab. For over two decades, researchers at NASA had been noodling over the idea that the interaction between a machine piloting itself and a human who might want to take over could be akin to that of a person atop a horse, holding the reins. When you draw a horse's reins close, you assume control. But let the reins loose and the horse will walk itself. 
By the horse's ears and posture, the way it moves, you can tell it has taken control. You can be sure that whether you're in control or not, the horse's own sense of self-preservation will keep you within some boundary of safety, from, say, charging over a cliff. The question was how a man and an airplane could trade off with each other so gracefully. Lathrop wondered, what if there were a machine that couldn't be forced into disaster? A machine, in other words, that behaved according to the horse metaphor. Even if you were atop the horse and you had let loose the reins altogether, it could sense what you'd done and let its own eyes and instincts take control. Lathrop realized that the metaphor wasn't just apt. It was a map of what needed to be invented. A horse had eyes, ears, a sense of touch. A car would need the same. Sensors to watch your eyes to see if you were paying attention. Sensors to tell whether you were holding the steering wheel or had your feet on the pedals. After years of research came the steering wheel that the engineers had just unveiled. I sat down in the makeshift driver's seat and tested it out. Starting off, it behaved like any other steering wheel. But as I lifted my hands off, the steering wheel drew away by about seven or eight inches, just enough to the edge of my reach that I could tell it wasn't mine to control. But one thing did stay in place, the center column of the wheel, where all the entertainment controls would presumably live. The subtle message was, these controls are for you, the steering now belongs to the machine. Of course, like loosened reins, I could still grab back the wheel if I wanted to take charge. But that span of seven or eight inches was a finely tuned gap, enough of a gulf that the car was unmistakably in control. When Brian Lathrop started working at Volkswagen, most people assumed that to tell a car to start driving itself, you'd just push a button. My thesis was simply that that was wrong, says Lathrop. Of course, that impulse for push-button simplicity was itself a metaphor embedded in our culture. Designers such as Henry Dreyfus and William Dorwin Teague had helped birth that ideal with electric washing machines and kitchen appliances. It was Teague, working for Edwin Land, who designed the first Polaroid camera, which ingeniously compressed the laborious process of developing film into something anyone could do without a second thought, with just one press. Today, we see that heritage in the one-click purchasing of Amazon, the Nespresso coffee maker, and even the help button designed by Maladin Barbarich. We aspire to make our interactions as concise as possible, available in button form. But the power of that idea is slowly giving way to something else. When we push a button, we give explicit permission for a machine to do something on our behalf. But if you take the view of the machine, what is the button except one indicator, the only one it knows how to process, of what we want? What if a machine, like a horse, could determine whether you were still in control just by sensing your behavior? What if a car, sensing you'd leaned over or weren't paying attention, would know it had to take control? Lathrop wanted to design a world in which machines didn't require explicit commands to take over. To be sure, this didn't mean a world of killer robots such as the HAL 9000 with minds of their own. Rather, this would be a world in which computers might sense what you wanted even before you'd managed to form the thought in your head. 
It was a vision in which the press of a button would feel like work. After all, what was a button but a mere approximation of the more fluid relationship we have with one another and with the natural world? In the future, ways of passing control back and forth between man and machine would be embedded in our body language, just as they've been between humans for millennia. Lathrop believed that the button-push world was about to end. He believed that, just as Facebook senses what we're likely to read or Amazon predicts what we'll buy, the machines we've always taken satisfaction in controlling would simply sense what we want. The Audi steering wheel and the horse metaphor was one idea about how things would evolve next, in the guise of things we already knew how to use. You might wonder at the weirdness of this. After all, far fewer Westerners have ridden a horse than have driven a car. But the power of the metaphor isn't that we necessarily have direct experience. Its power lies in the fact that the way reins control a horse is easy to imagine, reinforced over time in more movies and TV shows than we can count. That you can know what reins are and how they work without ever having ridden a horse, that's proof that the metaphor works. For Lathrop, the next step was to figure out how to give the machine the right instincts about what you were doing, just like you would a horse. To figure out if you were paying enough attention to drive, the car had to see whether your eyes were forward and your posture alert, and sense whether your hands and feet were on the wheel and pedals. Only when these were all affirmative would the car let you assume control. If your hand wandered, if you stretched your legs, if you were caught daydreaming, the car would know to take control. Our cars are already quietly evolving like this, taking over. Today, many adaptive cruise control systems will simply pull over to a stop if you fall asleep. They're watching us. For us to trust a machine, we have to be safe in the knowledge that it can sense what we want. But likewise, we have to be able to accurately imagine just what it is that the machine is capable of doing. We have to have the right mental model of it. When our mental models don't fit with reality, when something doesn't do exactly what we imagine, and when the feedback loops fail to help us understand, horrible things can happen. We saw how drivers unsure of what the autopilot feature in their Tesla could do were creating videos with titles such as Tesla Autopilot Tried to Kill Me. Maybe the most mortifying part was that Tesla had called the new feature Autopilot. By doing so, Tesla planted an idea in the heads of its users about what a car driving itself should do. They invited drivers to supply their own ideas about Autopilot, then sent them on their way. And when there was a gap between what Autopilot did and how people imagined it, tragedy struck. On May 7th, Joshua Brown was behind the wheel of his beloved Tesla Model S while the car took care of the driving. He was a veteran of the Navy, where he'd worked with SEAL Team 6 disarming IEDs. He was a daredevil and a tech geek, Tesla's ideal customer. When he bought the car, he bought the idea that Tesla was pushing the limits of what we were ready for. Brown didn't seem to notice when a truck in the oncoming lane took a left turn in front of him. Neither did his Tesla. It was bright and clear out, a warm Florida day, and the car didn't make out the white truck against a sunlit white sky. Neither did Brown. 
his Tesla plowed into and under the truck without braking at all, shearing off the car's roof and killing him. Just a few weeks after that, I borrowed from the company's press fleet an Audi SUV that had been outfitted with the latest in Audi's driver assist technology, perhaps one of the last few generations on the market before Audi begins to roll out cars like the prototype I saw, which let you take your hands off the wheel. The differences between that SUV and the Tesla that Joshua Brown drove were striking. It had the same basic technologies, radars and cameras that identified the lane markers and the cars around, so that when you hit cruise control, the car could stay in its lane and brake as needed to stay in the flow of highway traffic at a comfortable distance from other vehicles. Unlike the Tesla, the Audi wouldn't let you take your hands off the wheel for much more than a couple of seconds without the car pinging insistently, then frantically. But more than that, the car, which I could feel steering in the lane by itself, wasn't totally steering. Instead, it did nothing when I was driving down roughly the middle of the lane. Only when I got close to the lane dividers did I feel the steering wheel start to turn itself, guiding the car gently back. It was a beautiful interaction for how much information was embedded in it. The machine could readily drive in the center of the lane, but it didn't, forcing me to stay engaged in the act of driving. My mental model was far different from the one Joshua Brown had in his Tesla. My SUV was telling me, you're still driving, so pay attention. But then I got an intimation of just how capably the car was watching everything around me. Driving down the highway, an 18-wheeler started veering into my blind spot. Immediately, my car nudged itself over, away from the impending sideswipe, and applied the brakes hard, letting the truck pass. It was obvious that this was a car that could drive itself under many circumstances. It could see the road, and it could see the cars around it. It could react to danger. Yet those capabilities weren't being fully loosed. The car wouldn't let me take my hands off the wheel, because the car wasn't quite ready for every situation. Neither are we. More than a year after Joshua Brown's death, the National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, issued its accident report. The finding was, essentially, that Tesla's designs allowed too much leeway in how the autopilot feature was used, but that Brown should have been paying close attention all along. It was, in other words, driver error, a telling echo of all those pilot error crashes that Paul Fitz investigated during World War II, and all those engineers who'd blamed the pilots. It was business as usual because by the end, We'd figured out how to blame the user. The most comforting message, because it means that the least has to change. Consider two examples from recent history. When a driverless Uber killed a pedestrian in Arizona while driving at night. And in Hawaii when, during a routine drill, a hapless employee sent a nuclear missile warning that reached tens of thousands of people. Uber had been testing its self-driving cars on the open road for a few years, until the night of March 18, 2018, when, in Tempe, Arizona, one of them, driving 40 miles per hour, killed Elaine Hertzberg while she was crossing the street. A week later, the Tempe chief of police said she suspected that Uber was not at fault. The day after that, I saw a headline on my phone that read, Woman killed by driverless car likely homeless. 
The inference wasn't subtle. Maybe it was her fault, the homeless being who they are. That narrative may have stuck if video hadn't soon emerged, clearly showing Hertzberg crossing the street in the glare of the car's headlights, and the car not slowing down at all before it hit her. Uber suspended the program for a while, before quietly starting it back up. In the case of Hawaii, the design community was ablaze when a screenshot leaked showing that to send a statewide alert of a nuclear attack, an employee merely had to select one option among many in a confusing drop-down menu. As Don Norman noted in a tweet, the interface didn't have one critical feature, a way to confirm that this was indeed what the user meant to do. Yet it read, with astonishing blandness, are you sure you want to send this alert? The employee clicked, yes. Imagine if the pop-up menu had instead conveyed the actual decision being made. Do you really want to tell thousands of people that their families will be vaporized in a couple of minutes? Or something to that effect. Then a story emerged that the error occurred only because the employee in question, when faced with a drill, had simply failed to understand that it was merely a test. For a couple of days, it seemed like the government would be forced to redesign a clearly terrible system. But with the person to blame, the story merely vanished. We take comfort in blaming humans when things go wrong. The NTSB took that point of view when it investigated the death of Joshua Brown. His Tesla had come with instructions, and he had plowed ahead all the same. He had, apparently, been too trusting of what the car could do and unaware of its limitations. But why did the Tesla even let any driver's trust outstrip what the machine could actually do? We demand that new technologies do not only what they promise, but what we imagine. We also demand that they behave in the way we guess they will, without ever having used them before. But making that happen means that the machines must be designed so that our imaginations can't get too far ahead of the machines. When they do, confusion reigns. This problem is working itself out before us in real time in the form of digital assistants, Alexa by Amazon, Siri by Apple, and the Google Assistant. Because these have all been taught to understand and respond to our natural language, users assume that they can indeed use them to do common sense things. And yet it's all too easy to push them past their capabilities. Tell friends, let's make a dinner reservation tomorrow at six at our usual spot and they know exactly what you mean. Try to tell your digital assistant the same, and it can't even set aside time on your calendar. Their capabilities simply fall short of the interface they've aped. These gadgets can mimic language, and yet they are miles away from accomplishing the things we do with language. The spoken word is our most flexible interface, able to convey literally anything we can imagine. Machines unlike human beings, are still backed by lists of features and functions, no matter how capably they seem to understand language. As a result, what digital assistants can and cannot do exists in a misty gray area. Talking to one is still a strange type of translation, hampered by the nagging exercise of forcing yourself to think before you ever say anything. Okay, so what can this thing do? And how do I say that clearly? We are left trying to reverse engineer our language to suit a machine. 
For now, these machines often fall back on pre-programmed jokes, which is a clever way of avoiding having to say, sorry, I didn't actually understand that, and to tell you the truth, I don't understand most of the things you might imagine. Yet the set of things that these assistants can do is already remarkably long. Alexa, for example, boasts well over 50,000 skills, Amazon's name for actions that Alexa can perform, which range from playing a song you like to doing your shopping. And yet our finding out and remembering what they can do has remained a glaring problem in the design. Today, one of the only ways to do so is reading an email sent to you every week. No wonder, then, that, according to one study, a mere 3% of people who buy a voice assistant end up using it regularly just two weeks later. If you do have a smart speaker, it's probably the most expensive kitchen timer you've ever bought, and it remains only that, because whatever else it might do is difficult to discover and impossible to remember. There are typically two solutions offered to that challenge. First is an engineering-led, brute-force approach. By simply gaining more and more capabilities, these assistants will eventually do anything asked of them. And yet, wait until it gets good isn't much of a strategy. Digital assistants will never fulfill their promise without well-designed mental models that allow a user to understand how such a tool fits into their lives and what it can do. Don Norman is probably most famous among designers for popularizing the idea of an affordance, physical details designed in products that tell us how they're to be used, such as the subtle curve of a door handle that tells you which way to pull, or the indentation on a button that tells you where to push. Alphonse Chapanis had anticipated that idea in his shape-coded knobs and handles for airplane cockpits. Today, on smartphones and computers, buttons are now represented in pixels, and the affordances appear as icons and bevels and notifications and menus. Tomorrow, in a world of machines that sense what we want, governed by metaphors that we take for granted, those affordances will necessarily become psychological. When buttons disappear into the ether around us, our mental models will tell us what a machine can do. We already expect a car with autopilot to behave according to our ideas about autopilot. We already expect a digital assistant to do the things that we imagine artificial intelligence should do. And yet these devices often fall short because affordances, which were once communicated by buttons and icons that we could see and touch, are now determined by our assumptions about how machines should behave. Mapping that landscape will be one of the great design challenges of the coming decades. The paradox of having machines that do more and more for us, that drive when we don't want to drive, or tell stories to our kids when we are distracted, or shop when we'd rather keep sitting on the couch watching Netflix, is that by doing so many things in our image, the machines sap the footprint of what we do every day. They do our chores. But does all that tiny stuff which might have otherwise filled our day make us less capable over time? Does it make us less human? There are, to be sure, reasons to fear, which we'll hear in Chapter 9. But perhaps there are reasons to be optimistic. When Brian Lathrop and Eric Glazer were researching how a driverless car should behave around pedestrians, 
they learned that the apparent politeness of its braking patterns was far more important than any other interface. I thought of this as I sat with a virtual reality device strapped to my face at a desk in a research lab at Columbia University. My host was Samir Sapru, a postdoctoral researcher. Samir, an Indian immigrant and a computer programmer in his undergrad years, had come to the United States to study the brain. He could draw a line of influence directly from his first days in college in Mumbai, away from home for the first time, to where we were sitting now. He was inspired by watching the movie The Matrix. My hair stood up on my arms, he said, explaining that we have somehow ended up in the world that The Matrix predicted, albeit with less of a frightening post-apocalyptic veneer. With these new devices, like the one I wore in the lab, the idea of being seamlessly planted in a new kind of world seemed right here already. Close to the Matrix, but without the spike in the back of your head to plug in, Sapru said, smiling. The point of the simulation was to show two things, that an artificial intelligence algorithm could learn to drive, and, once it learns to drive, that it could then be taught to drive like we wanted it to. Sapru thought that the problem with all these driverless cars crawling across Silicon Valley on test drives was that while they might learn to drive, they might learn to drive in ways that wouldn't satisfy us. Perhaps they would brake too hard or swerve into other lanes too quickly, always keen for efficiency, but also possessed of reflexes and data and awareness so far ahead of our own that we'd be bouncing around in the passenger seat, motion sick, unsure about what was going to happen next. Of course, Sapru was probably overstating the problem. When I rode in the Audi as the late afternoon sun dappled San Francisco Bay, the remarkable thing was how calm and polite the car already was. It was no daredevil. The engineers had already tuned its driving to be as reassuring as possible. But making the car polite was only the beginning of what Sapru wanted to do. He wanted to make the car responsive to how its passengers felt, to drive fast when you were feeling competitive or rushed for time, to take the scenic route when you just wanted to relax. He was one-upping Lathrop's horse metaphor, where Lathrop was focused on figuring out how the car could sense whether you were paying attention and then take control when you weren't. Sapru wanted the car to behave like a very polite butler to whom you'd paid a lot of money to anticipate your whims without your ever having to lift a finger. What if you have a machine that can do a better job than you can, but that doesn't act anything like you? He asked. You're creating a new class of being. So what is your relationship like? I asked, but what if stress and the agency that comes with constantly fiddling with your environment are, in some ways, the essence of what it means to be human? Would we really want to live in a world that was truly friction-free, where the room temperature adjusted before we ever had a chance to feel any kind of discomfort? Wouldn't that make us more and more like floating brains in a vat stuck in the matrix, unaware of what's real? Wouldn't the machines then be dictating our desires, rather than merely anticipating them? Sapru disagreed. A hundred thousand years ago, the stress we felt was in hearing a rustle in the branches, he said. The rustle of maybe becoming the next meal for a tiger or the trophy kill of a neighboring tribe. The hint of death and bloodshed, which could descend at any second. 
Now, Sapru said, the times we feel that visceral fear are more likely to be while we're sitting at our desks, gossiping in a chat room with our coworkers about impending layoffs. Our lives are going to be more comfortable, and we're going to seek agency in other places. His proof was the iPhone and the touchscreen that changed the world. Working some 30 years before the iPhone, computer scientists at Xerox Park had already anticipated some kind of gadget that you could merely tap to get what you want, without a keyboard. The idea was that if we could use our hands more naturally, then there'd be fewer obstacles to what we want to accomplish. There would be no figuring out how to use the computer. We'd just use it, and our intentions would be laid bare. With the iPhone, Sapru said, you were closer to what you wanted to do, and you were closer to what it means to be human.